Today we begin a three-week sermon series called Enough. Next week we'll address vocation, the work we do with a sermon called You Do Enough. And the week after that, we'll examine mission and outreach with a sermon called Enough is Enough. But today, we consider the truth that we celebrate with every single baptism we ever do. It's a truth that we must recite to ourselves again and again because it's one of the most difficult ones to trust, that you are enough. This week, I put a question out on social media. I asked people to share some of the most hurtful things anybody's ever said to them. The words spoken to you that that made you feel like you are not enough. And I also asked them to, to say how old they were when those words were spoken to them. You see, I I had this hypothesis that those critical, hurtful words, well, they really stick. They sear their way into our hearts and our souls, and they never really do leave us. It's a terrible tape that just loops in your head and your heart on repeat. Judging by the flood of responses I received, some posted publicly a lot more message to me privately. I would say that the hypothesis checks out. The messages we internalize, they can stick with us for years and even decades. So as we begin today, I've invited David and Davidson Smithwick to share a sample of these hurtful words, the name of the one who received them, and how old they were when they did. Co-valedictorian. Why didn't you earn the entire honor yourself? Jenny, age 18. There are only six people in our club, and you would make seven. Claudia, age nine. I'm confident that you'll never do anything to benefit me. Carol, age 27. We don't want her playing with us. Joanne, age 12. Short men never really accomplish anything. Roy, age 31. Don't vote for her. She's boring. Shaylee, age 11. You're the most discouraging student I've had in 30 years of teaching. Mary, age 20. What was that? I thought you were going to be good. Hannah, age 11. You're only here because you must have been an affirmative action kid. Dr. Omid Safi, Duke University, age 18. She's probably not cut out for college. Catherine, age eight. You're a second-rate kid with a first-rate father. Elizabeth, age 23. Be a man. Don't let them see you cry. Daniel age eight. The eight-year-old girl down the street is handling her cancer better than you're handling this miscarriage. Heidi, age 30. 
Do you think that you could find me a piece of chalk without stuttering? Sophie, age 13. You will never amount to anything. God put you on this earth for people to laugh at. Becca, age 24. Grass withers, the flower fades, but words like these sting for a very long time. How is anybody supposed to know their worth when we say things like this to each other? When teachers say things like this to their students, when parents say things like this to their children, when partners say things like this to one another? And what in the world can the church say to bring some balance to those scales, especially when they are so tipped in the direction of the critical and the spiteful and the hurtful? A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
invite you to pray with me. Lord, open our ears to the words you whisper to us, but not just our ears, our hearts as well, that we might internalize your message of love and trust it all the way down to our very bones. Amen. So have you heard of these overheard pages on Instagram? Anybody? Anybody? A couple? A couple of you? All right, great. So essentially, they are these like digital monuments to eavesdropping, right? It's a collection of random quotes overheard in certain significant locales. There's overheard New York City. There's you know, overheard Cleveland. There's actually an overheard UNC I just discovered this week. So have fun checking that one out. Not now, but later, please. <laughs> the trend started in 2015 when Jesse Margolis created the Overheard LA account as a place to just collect the weirdest things he caught from other people's conversations. He overheard a father saying to his kid, sugar is addictive. Those Girl Scouts are just adorable drug dealers. Or an eight-year-old saying to his mom, can you please be a little nicer to me? This is my first pandemic. <laughs> At the LAX airport, he heard over the loudspeaker, would a dog by the name of Ray please report to gate two? Your owner is waiting for you at gate two, a dog by the name of Ray. That's a really good dog <laughs> in response to that. But this was my favorite. This is good. He's 31 years old, but like North Carolina 31, like two kids and a mortgage. 31-year-old <laughs> guys in LA are just learning how to cook chicken. <laughs> I'm glad to know that in sunny California, North Carolina is known for generating men capable of cooking for themselves by their 30s. Take the winds where you get them, North Carolina. It's not surprising to me that something like this came into being. Eavesdropping is just, it's just too interesting. For just one moment, you just get dropped right into the middle of somebody else's conversation. You don't know how the conversation got there. You don't know where the conversation is going. You just get this one little piece of the puzzle, and you're left to reconstruct the rest. Now, I don't know about you, but it's pretty difficult listening to David and Davidson recite all those hurtful statements. We don't know how the conversations got there. We can probably imagine the places of deep hurt and shattered confidence that they led to. It's a puzzle I'd frankly rather not finish. I suspect the final picture is pretty painful. Listening to them got me wondering, though, can we ever fully appreciate the power of our words? How they, in the words of our confession today, can both bless and bruise. I wonder if the one who said those things has any clue how deeply they cut, how much those words sank into the soul of the one who received them and shook them down to the core. 
The baptism of Jesus is narrated by all four Gospels, but Mark, the version we read this morning, Mark gives us the most succinct. Mark sparingly narrates Jesus going out to meet John at the Jordan River. He's baptized, then Jesus sees the heavens torn apart, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and finally we overhear this tiny snatch of a conversation between Jesus and God. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. It's the only part we hear. But for this one moment, we get to eavesdrop on this beautiful moment between parent and child, hearing words of affirmation, hearing words of adoration. Unlike all those mean-spirited messages that we collect in this life, in this moment we overhear a message of pure love. The words we all long to hear. You are enough. Just the way you are. It might be worth noting here that God offers these words of affirmation at the very beginning of the story before Jesus even has a chance to prove himself in any way whatsoever. That feels intentional. A reminder that God's love is not conditional. It's not predicated on one's performance. It's not contingent on some set of measurable successes. It's a gift given. No strings attached. No expectations to meet. But no sooner has Jesus drip-dried on the banks of the Jordan than that sweet dove of a spirit snatches him up and drives him out into the wilderness, where Mark tells us he is tempted by Satan. So let's talk about Satan. Now when you hear that name, Satan, and you hear temptation, I feel like the the popular imagination goes to the, the devil offering all manner of pleasures and delights in exchange for one's soul. That's kind of how the the story has gone in in much of our culture. But I don't believe that's what we are getting in the pages of Scripture. In Greek, the shaitan, the Satan, means the accuser or the adversary. Matthew and Luke will tell a similar story, though a more detailed version, but they will use the word the devil instead, diabolos which literally means the one who throws things around, the one who confuses matters. Whoever or whatever this power might be, it's not tempting Jesus with pleasures. It's not offering him delights. It's lying to him about who he really is and what he's really worth. At the moment of his baptism, God says to Jesus, you are my son, you are beloved. And immediately there are voices telling him otherwise. And it's really easy to project all of that tearing down, all that criticism onto some demonic figure. But as David and Davidson reminded us, we don't need a devil or a Satan to tell us we're not enough. We're perfectly proficient at doing that for one another and for ourselves. That's why baptism, it's so crucial. It's such a crucial part of the life of the church. 
And not just for the one being baptized, not just the one. When we baptize anyone, whether a baby in arms, a squirmy toddler, or a full-grown person, we are remembering and reciting a truth that's so hard to trust, that you are enough. We eavesdrop on that conversation between God and Jesus and realize God has been whispering that same thing to us all along. You are my daughter, the beloved. You are my son, the beloved. There is nothing you've done. There is nothing you will ever do that will change that. Nothing. A couple decades ago, Sue Monk Kidd published the novel The Secret Life of Bees. I bet more of you read that than have looked at overheard accounts, right? That's what I'm guessing. It's a story about Lily, a 13-year-old girl who lives with a couple of heavy burdens. For starters, her father, named T. Ray, is abusive both verbally and physically. But Lily also lives with a heavy burden that as a toddler, she was responsible for her mother's death. Her father never wastes an opportunity to remind her of this fact. So Lily believes herself to be unforgivable and unlovable. In the summer of 1964, she runs away with her nanny, Rosaline, clutching the only relic she has of her mother's past. It's a photo of a black Madonna statue with the words Tiburon, South Carolina, written on the back. Upon arriving in Tiburon, they recognize the black Madonna on a jar of honey, and they trace it back to these three sisters named May, June, and August, who take them into their home, give them a place to stay. And sitting in the living room of their very pink house, Lily sees the carving of this black Mother Mary, obviously removed from an old sailing ship. And this is what she experiences in the presence of that statue. She had a faded red heart painted on her breast and a yellow crescent moon, worn down and crooked, painted where her body would have blended into the ship's wood. A candle inside a tall red glass threw glimmers across her body. She was a mix of mighty and humble, all in one. I didn't know what to think, but what I felt was magnetic and so big that it ached like the moon had entered my chest and filled it up. The lips on the statue had a beautiful, bossy half-smile the sight of which caused me to move both my hands up to my throat. Everything about that smile said, Lily Owens, I know you down to the core. I felt she knew what a lying, murdering, hating person I really was. How I hated T. Ray and the girls at school, but mostly myself for taking away my mother. I wanted to cry, but in the next instant, I wanted to laugh because the statue also made me feel like Lily the smiled upon, like there was goodness and beauty in me too, like I really had all that fine potential that my sister said I did. Lily Owens, I know you down to the core 
Henry Porter, I know you down to the core. You are my son, you are my daughter, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. You are enough. I know that it's highly unlikely that UPC would ever have an overheard webpage spring up for the snatches of conversation heard in these hallways and in the places where we live our faith out there. But what if there were one? Imagine that with me for a moment. I wonder what would get posted on there. I pray, I pray that it would be filled with messages of encouragement, messages that build up, messages that remind every one of God's children what they are truly worth. That you are enough, that you are beloved. Overhear those words, church, but don't just post them on some web page. Say them out loud to the ones who need to hear them most. Recite them to yourself. Recite them to our children. Recite them to one another. Say them so loud that the whole world cannot help but overhear. Say them until they're written on our hearts, now and forever. Amen.